God, our Father, we thank you right now as an act of worship for your word. Your word that you tell us was given to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, prophetically given. And your word pierces to the depths of our being, to joint and marrow. And it does not return without accomplishing the purpose to which you sent it. And God, today, as we look to your word, we come with anticipation and, Lord, asking by your Holy Spirit that you would speak to our hearts today to bring us into accord with what your will is for each one of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Encounters with Jesus come in various shapes and sizes. They are also experienced by people who are very far from God like we learned a few weeks ago uh, from a tax collector named Zacchaeus, or even by prostitutes as the Bible represents, and especially by his followers, disciples like Martha and Mary, as well as the 12, whom 11 of them would go on to become apostles. Encounters with Jesus also come in everyday routines of life when we do not often expect them. That kind, timely word, that compliment, the bestowal of God's favor in an unexpected success. They also come in life's darkest moments, in the trials of life, what the Bible will sometimes represent as the storms of life. And today we're talking about one such storm, which took place on the Sea of Galilee, often referred to within the Bible as the lake. Well, in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into the boat and sat it in it, out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore of the water's edge. He taught them many things by his parables. Now the crowd was so large that Jesus had no alternative but to get into a boat, push off from shore, to teach the hundreds or maybe even the thousands who were in that natural nature's amphitheater. And Jesus is teaching from the front of the boat. That's where the, boat, the seats were located. It's where it helped hold the structure of the bow together. And it was a borrowed boat. And here is Jesus teaching in these serene waters of Galilee with this beautiful view of the seashore and of the sea. And the backdrop is superb. In verses 3 through 20, we notice that he tells the parable of the sower. He talks about different kinds of soil. He talks about weeds and rocks. And he talks about good soil. And then he even interprets the parable for them. Mark has already told us in the first three chapters, though, of this gospel, if we'd look through it, we would have noticed that he uh, has told us all about Jesus healing people, left and right. He healed a leper. He healed a man who was paralyzed. He even drove out evil spirits. So people wanted to hear what this guy had to say. They wanted to be around him. They wanted to experience him. Now, encountering something or encountering someone uh, generally is an unexpected or an unnerving experience that people have in life. Encountering a crime when it's in process is always shocking to people. Or driving up upon a vehicle accident, encountering that is, is, is startling to people. When I was in fifth grade, I was on a fishing trip with an uncle of mine, and we were driving back, and my younger brother, Doug, was with us, and we're in the back seat of the car, and we came across a vehicle accident where the people were burned in the car. I, I literally couldn't eat for days. Uh, I still have those images in my mind. That's an unexpected encounter. That's the way they usually are. Well, Jesus' disciples are about to encounter Jesus in a new way, a way they never expected they would. So in this setting, 
Jesus teaches about sowing, and he teaches about lamps that aren't to be hidden. They're, they're stimulating counts of bushel baskets and mustard seeds, as we see in these first 34 verses of Mark chapter 4. Jesus is using the ordinary things of everyday life to explain what the kingdom of God is like. As evening approaches, Jesus wraps up his teaching for the day, and then his portable pulpit, the boat, becomes a ferry for Jesus and his 12 disciples to go to their next place of ministry, which happens to be across the Sea of Galilee, some 10 miles away or so. And they do this trip in the eve of the night. And on evenings and even in nights, the winds tend to be calmer. A direction is easily known by which, where, where the sun sets in the west or by the stars in the sky. So this was often the safest time uh, for people to travel across the Sea of Galilee. Now I can imagine this setting that the disciples would have wanted to debrief a little bit with Jesus from the full day of ministry with Jesus' teaching and the disciples' interactions with, the, with all the people, with the crowds. Because you notice when we read in verse 1, it said that all of the people were on the shore, which included the disciples. Because Jesus was the one who was out in the boat, he was all alone on the boat, and the twelve were rubbing shoulders with people in the crowd, with the seekers. And I am sure that they would have had some wonderful times of sharing that evening, some testimonies about what they heard and what they experienced. And Jesus, when you were saying this and teaching on this, here's how they were responding. Here's what they were muttering under their breath. Jesus, when you did this, they were, they were touched by this account. And oh, by the way, Jesus, what did you mean when you said such and such? We know those things happened, because if you read John chapter 16, when Jesus talked about going away for a little while, and then uh, you won't see him, and then he would come back, they asked Jesus, what did you mean, Jesus? Jesus, when you said this, what did you mean? So we know the disciples were doing those things, but none of that is spoken of in the Bible. In fact, in the synoptic gospels of this account here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us that Jesus went to the back of the boat, laid down on a cushion, and fell asleep. That's a picture you don't see every day, do you? A sleeping Savior? Of all the artistic renditions out there of Jesus, I'm pretty sure, in fact, I'm certain that none of us have ever seen a portrait or none of us have a portrait in our houses of Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. That's not the image we have of Jesus. That's not the metaphor we have of Jesus, that our Savior is asleep in the back of the boat. See, Jesus didn't always run around like a chicken with his head cut off. He wasn't always in busy mode going from one thing to the next at breakneck pace. He rested. He was fully human as well as fully God, so he took care of his human body. His perfection didn't prevent him from eating or from becoming tired, or from calling upon his father in prayer, or from just spending solitary time with his father, or from experiencing a broad range of human emotions, or for that matter, from sleep. And folks, sleeplessness is a clear sign that someone is overcommitted. Someone who is too busy, and by the way, the consequences of sleep depravity are costly. Tanner Sumar writes that America as a whole is sleep-deprived. And many think that sleep is actually a waste of time. You've probably heard the comment, oh, I'll have plenty of time to sleep when I'm dead. You've heard that, haven't you? You've heard people say that. And have you ever noticed the proliferation of coffee shops in America? 
in the last couple of decades? I mean, literally, you can even have drive through ones now. So you can go up and get your favorite cup of java, uh, no problem. And people can get all jacked up on caffeine so they can just make it through the day. What people fail to realize is that they'd be way more productive in their lives if they spend a lot less money on caffeine and just get a good night's sleep. See, fatigue is to blame for two-thirds of all industrial work accidents. There are over 100,000 vehicle accidents every single year, many of them resulting in death because somebody who was driving one of those vehicles was sleep-deprived. Sleepy workers cost employers tens upon tens upon tens of billions of dollars each year in production. Now, let me mention This data doesn't even take into account the accidents in judgment or the foolish mistakes that usually cost us money or the many moral failures that all occur in our lives because of physical and emotional fatigue. Now, if Jesus had simply walked to the back of the boat and fell asleep, that would have been enough of a lesson for us. But he did more. He didn't teach anyone anymore. He didn't preach any more messages. He didn't take time to heal anyone. While he was in the back of the boat, he didn't engage in ministry to others, though indirectly he was teaching his apostles and he was teaching us a very valuable lesson. See, the back of the boat is a metaphor. It's a symbol of the importance of taking a break from the busyness of life. The back of the boat is not a luxury. It is not optional. If our goal in life is to lead godly lives, to lead healthy, balanced lives, it is the back of the boat time. It's the off time that makes the bow of the boat uh, time possible and also makes the bow of the boat time impactful. Dr. Richard Swenson would say that when Jesus went to the back of the boat, he was practicing margin. He says margin is the space that once existed between our load and our limits. Margin is the space between vitality and exhaustion. It's our breathing room. It's our reserves. It's our leeway. It's the opposite of being overloaded in our lives. Now, I must say that in the early years of my early years of ministry, I learned this important lesson of margins. If I let myself get too busy in ministry, it often led to ineffective and sometimes even inappropriate ministry. In fact, the busier I now get in ministry, the more time I shave off my schedule. The more time I try to get away from ministry. I learned very early on in ministry that if I was ever going to survive as a pastor, if I was ever going to get to the place I'm at right now in my career, because most pastors drop out at the seven-year mark, This 13-year mark is the next time pastors drop out. And if pastors can make it to 20 years, they will usually finish their career as a pastor. I learned early on that I had to keep those margins in my life. So the busier I get, the more I actually slow down. I learned I had to do that to survive at this game. Well, when Jesus went to the back of the boat that evening, it wasn't his first time, nor was it his last time that he practiced margin. 
How many times do we see him in the Gospels going away to a solitary time, a space and time to spend time with his father? Even in the times of tremendous challenge, like when they brought the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 before him, and the religious leaders literally had Jesus entrapped because the law said that she had to be stoned to death. And most people think that when Jesus bent down and rode in the sand, that he was actually giving people there time to process what they were doing because they didn't bring the man. They only brought the woman and, uh, and realized what they were doing. They were putting this woman to death and all of this, and they're trying to also, their motives weren't pure. And most people think that's why Jesus bent down and wrote in the sand. But could it also be that Jesus bent down at that moment just to take some time for himself, to calm his own emotions when he's being jacked around like that? Think about that. See, time and time again, we see Jesus caring for his own body. Yet somehow, we think that we can get along in our lives or in our Christian faith without caring for our temples, the temples of the Holy Spirit. By the way, let's not also miss the metaphor of the boat in general. Being in the front of the boat most of the day, Jesus was leading the way. If you will, he was sailing on to new horizons with the church. But going to the back of the boat, going to the stern, he's now structurally in the location that actually holds the boat all together. See, if the transom fails, the boat is going down and it's going down fast. It will sink. Also, the back of the boat is where the rudder is located, that turns the entire boat. It gives the boat direction. And the metaphor should not be missed. If we follow the example and the leading of Jesus, we can face the storms that life throws our way and even calm the storms within by practicing this strategy of rest that Jesus did. Look at verses 37 and 38 in our text. A furious squall came upon, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, the actual Sea of Galilee makes it particularly susceptible to sudden violent storms. It's situated in a basin, really like a, a bowl, surrounded by mountains uh, on all sides. And usually the sea is calm in the evening, in the early morning hours. But when a storm does show up at these intervals, it's usually a doozy. And the text tells us it was a furious squall, threatening to capsize the boat. Now, obviously, the disciples' rebuke of Jesus here was completely inappropriate. They were big time out of bounds. But it does represent for us here two important lessons. Number one, they didn't fully understand who Jesus was. They called him teacher, but they didn't call him the creator and sustainer of all things. They didn't say he was the sovereign Lord. They didn't even really reference him as Lord, per se, uh, in, the, in the one who's in control of all things. They, they referred to him as teacher. And then they also let their human emotions take over in this situation. Don't you care, teacher? Don't you care? Well, are we any different? We're just like them, aren't we? When the storms of life come our way. What do we often do when the storms of life come? First of all, we look for someone else to blame. 
You know, someone else is the cause of this or someone else did something. We, we quickly point fingers in these situations. We also struggle to have faith, to keep faith in those moments, to believe that God is working on our behalf or that believe that God has some uh, purpose or intended outcome here. And we often even question God. God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this, God? Where are you, God? What does Jesus say in verse 39 and 30, in verse 40? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? You know, I have a very dear friend, nearly a lifelong friendship now. It goes back 45 years to when we were sophomores in college. We were both on the track team at the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. And in the fall, all the very good distance runners uh, go out for the cross country team. And we were a Division II school at that time, and our cross-country team was a powerhouse. The top seven runners could run sub-25 minutes over the five-mile course. Many, many All-Americans. So all the good distance runners on the track team would run cross-country in the fall. And then some of the really good sprinters and even one pole vaulter were on the football team as running backs and skilled position people and cornerbacks, and, and one was even a, a receiver. And the rest of us, because it's hard to be in two sports at the college level. You train all year just to be in one sport. But the rest of us would do captain's practices in the fall. They were, uh, they were four days a week, not on Fridays because many times people were traveling or gone. But Monday through Thursday, we would have captain's practices. And we were called the sandbaggers club because we weren't in these other sports. So we're the sandbaggers club. Well, with 110 guys on the track team, it's really hard to get to know everyone. So most often, you get to know the people in your own specialty, like the 10 guys who are pole vaulters on the team and our coach. Those are the ones that I got to know the best. Well, a friend of mine that I'm talking about today was a short guy. He's only 5 foot 7 inches tall, and he was a decathlete. And decathletes do 10 events, five on one day and five on the next, whenever there's a two-day meet. And if they're not doing that, they will try to perform an individual event or a couple of them in a regular meet when they have the opportunity to do that. In our school, 36 got to get on the bus, so this guy didn't win many events, so he didn't have an opportunity uh, to get on the bus and go to too many meets. But his name was Dirk Hunter. And he rarely placed in meets, but he could perform all of the events that he was in very well. But what he was, was a gifted leader. In our senior year, only seniors could ever be elected as captain of the team. Uh, he was elected as one of the three captains that year. I made the cut to the top five, but I got beat out. I got edged out uh, in the final vote by him. Dirk also was not a follower of Jesus back then. He was raised in a mainline denomination, in a nominal Christian home, yet his character and his values were impeccable. In fact, his life outshined most Christians, including my own, because I'd only been a Christian for a couple of years at that point. And it really made it challenging to share the gospel with someone who's literally living a better life than even what you're living. But I did share my faith often with him, and so did workers who were on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ on campus. Now, post-college, before I ever went to seminary, we used to work out together regularly. 
And even we coached track together for two years at Lacrosse Logan High School. I coached the pole vault and relays, and he coached the hurdlers. He then met a young lady who was in her first year of teaching as a special education teacher, and he was smitten with her, but she was a devout Christian, and she couldn't get into a committed relationship with him. So she's sharing her faith with him. I'm sharing my faith with him, and others were sharing their faith with him as well. And eventually, he came to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of his life. He went on uh, to be in our wedding, Cindy and my wedding. He was one of the uh, male attendants that were in our wedding. And then I had the privilege of doing his and Carol's wedding uh, in my first year of ministry 35 years ago or so in Wyzetta, Minnesota. Well, I'm also the person who got him started as a bow hunter. That's, it's, it's, it's what happened. I created, I've created two monsters in my life, my son Nathan and Dirk Hunter. Both bow hunters. And for decades, we've hunted together on his lease in the fall in Trempolo County, Wisconsin, as well as have gone hunting numerous times together in Illinois. Our families and even some of our friends have enjoyed numerous Boundary Waters canoe trips uh, with Dirk and some of his family members as well. When our daughters Naomi and Bethany were in college, they regularly hung out at the hunter's house because they lived in Onalaska, Wisconsin. When our daughter Naomi got a concussion from pole vaulting in college, she needed to be taken to the hospital. The doctors wanted her to stay with somebody they could keep an eye on her for a while. Well, Dirk ran down right away, got her. He was in the hospital with her. He took her home, and she stayed with them for a number of days. When practice would start uh, early before the dorms were open, Naomi would stay uh, at the Hunter's residence. And whenever they would have car problems, which if you send kids away to college, they have clunker old cars, and they break down, he would get them lined up with a mechanic or get them lined up to help them out so things could be taken care of. And they just go hang out with them sometimes. And Cindy, even when she was battling cancer and we were treat, being treated in Rochester, she had a radioactive iodine treatment on one Friday and had to be isolated over the weekend and then come back Monday for some tests. And we could just sit in two different hotel rooms in Rochester or we decided I put her in the far back corner of the back seat of the truck and we drove to Alaska, Wisconsin. She stayed in a hotel there. They agreed to let her stay there and would do some extra cleaning afterwards. We paid for that and she was stuck in that hotel hotel room for two and a half days all by herself, and I went and stayed with the hunters. They're like family to us. Well, Dirk would go on to become the principal of uh, Summit Elementary School. He went from being an elementary school teacher to then uh, rising up to be an elementary school uh, principal in La Crosse. He also was their English as ELS, English language, uh, second English language coordinator, and he also founded an environmental school that's state-of-the-art at Summit Elementary School in French Island in La Crosse. A decade or so ago, when the superintendent's position opened up for the La Crosse School District, uh, two school board members, independent of one another, uh, went and stopped by his office and begged him to apply for the job of being superintendent. He is a remarkable leader, someone uh, that I've had as an accountability partner for decades. He's been a mentor to me, an advisor, an example of what a good leader is, somebody I can just bounce ideas off. And he's so beloved that even my friends around here are now his friends, and so are my siblings, and my children are his friends as well. You know, when his father passed away 12 years ago, I was on one of my annual hunting uh, vacations, and I dropped all of that 
Cindy and I jumped in the car. We drove 240 miles to attend the visitation. We stood in line outside in the cool fall weather uh, two blocks down the street because his father was a popular radio personality that had been at one of the popular radio stations in La Crosse for uh, over three decades. And so people were lined up to get into visitation. We did all of that to be able to talk to Dirk and Carol and to his siblings and to his mom, Elaine, for seven or eight minutes come back out, get in the car, drive 240 miles back home. They did the same thing when each of Cindy's parents passed away. They jumped in their vehicles. They drove up uh, to each of their funerals. And just two months ago, we attended Dirk and Carol's daughter Kelly's wedding in the Twin Cities over Labor Day weekend, and we had a great time. Of course, they had a photo booth, and if you would know Dirk, you would know he is an absolute card. When he enters a room, he fills the room. I mean, his personality is so bubbly. I think some of that he got from his father, who's a, a radio personality. Some of it is just God's gifting to him as a leader. But he just, uh, I always tell people, if you can't get along with Dirk Hunter, you've got a personality problem. I mean, literally, he's that kind of an individual. But I had to get him. I really had to get him. So we got a photo of that from the photo booth. It was Jay and Kelly's wedding. And I think they've got that photo here right now, if they can find it. Uh, are you having any luck finding it? <laughs> oh, bummer. Sorry about that. Anyway, we uh, did take a picture, and it was loaded on the computer, but as we see, we have technology problems today. And so uh, anyway, I took this goofy picture with him, and during the week when they're sending uh, responses back to people from the pictures, he had one response to me. He said, Daryl, you are a piece of work. <laughs> they also came up to a number of our children's weddings that were held here at the church. They're literally part of our family. But I share all of this with you today because my dear friend Dirk Hunter is in the storm of his life right now, battling cancer. And it's his second go-around, which started out as prostate cancer. They thought they got it all. It was in the margin. They thought they had it all. And those of you who may remember Bob Hogfelt or Ted Borg, who are dearly loved from our church, and what they went through in the latter half of their battle with cancer that started out for them as well, as prostate cancer, Dirk is entering some of those later rounds himself right now. He actually stopped his cancer treatment three weeks before his daughter Kelly's wedding because he wanted to feel better on that day. And he wanted to enjoy that day. Currently, they are deciding what parts to even treat as they can't continue to radiate some areas as it damages parts of the body that are not cancerous. Well, we got together on two different occasions when I was just gone here in my last three weeks of vacation. And I am one who came away from those times blessed by how he's resting in the storm of his life that he's now facing. He retired early from his career uh, because of cancer. His wife even retired early this last year so she could spend more time with uh, him. She also lost her mother when she was a very young lady to cancer, so she understands the ravages of cancer. And she's even started going to his appointments. In fact, we couldn't get together one of the times uh, as early as we wanted to when I was on vacation because he was at one of his uh, oncologist appointments. And it was there that they got this news about what he was facing. And they're actually going to wait six months to do any more treatment right now because they want to be able to uh, sharpen the focus to do less damage to healthy tissue. Well, when he got that news, he turns to his wife, Carol, and he says, and you have to know him. He says, well, you get to have me for at least six more months now. 
And then he laughs. And then he tells the oncologist right there, could you put in the order that I don't have to do any more vacuuming at home? And, and the oncologist, she just laughs. And she says, yeah, but you still have to do the dishes. That's vintage Dirk. You know, he's trusting God. He's caring for his own body. He walks eight miles a day. And uh, he's cherishing the most important things in his life right now. His faith in God, his marriage, his family, his church, and his friends. And he's the exact same person to be around. We laugh when we're together. We love, we pray together. And he shared things with me that I never knew before. Even after 45 years of being close friends, I never knew about him or about his family. And I'm trying to help him right now in any way I possibly can. I have watched firsthand my dear friend, who is always a mover and a shaker, a go-getter, a leader of leaders, get up and go to the back of the boat. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the back of the boat is the place we go to remember who we are and whose we are. It's the place where roles and responsibilities are no longer the matters at hand. What matters in the back of the boat is that we receive refreshing for our bodies, our minds, and our spirits. What matters in the back of the boat is that we are at peace with ourselves and peace with God. And regardless of whatever our life's circumstances might be. What matters in the back of the boat is that delight is not found in what we produce, but in what we receive unconditionally from our loving Savior. Would you pray with me, please? God, our Father, we thank you for your word to us today. And with the knowledge, God, that we're going to look at this next week again and talk about those various things that, that take us away from the rest that you intend for us to have in our lives. But God, the example of Jesus is just stunning. It's unexpected, truly. It's, uh, and, and Lord, it's such a profound message for each of us. And I don't know, God, everybody here or everybody who's listening online, what they may possibly be going through. What storms of life are, are, are coming at them, are threatening to capsize their boat. But Lord, I know that you have a place of solitude. You have a place of rest. You have a place of care for our bodies, minds, and spirits that you want us to experience and you want us to experience regularly. I thank you, God, for my dear friend Dirk and for the model that he has been to me all these years and the model he is right now in the storm of his life. And God, I pray that we will trust you and we will learn from your example as Christians to rest in the storm and how God that even can calm the storm within. We pray for this end in Jesus' name. Amen.